0: Welcome back uh, calculators of no the selling circular I guess that doesn't really that's not really alliterative but I'm gonna I'm gonna roll with it because we already hit record and so now we can just kind of ease right into this we're playing with the uh, the, the somehow the wording here of our, of our intros just a little inside baseball and it didn't really work so I tried to do it live and there was no alliteration there. Uh, but nonetheless, we have a good episode here today. Uh, we uh, have the following. We're going to do a little intro chat. We're then going to, Sabir is going to teach us something new. And then we'll get into our kind of what we learned intros uh, to our next interview with the CEO of Mulg. So we'll, we'll intro that when that happens. Um, but uh, at that point, we're now at our, at our intro, which really I just was casually using this cup because we have them around but this in the frame anybody who's watching and then listening you can go find this clip uh is the reusable cup from starbucks that they now offer uh that you can purchase and i think it comes in packs of five it's a new way of again getting your cup in the morning Uh, my partner she really likes it um what do you think about this
1: how is it different than their other reusable cups
0: That's a great point. I would say it's lighter and it's not, Mm. um, it's, it's, it's built specifically to mimic, I think the standard paper cup, um, Mm -hmm. which then it comes with a top. That's also this, this sort of thicker type of plastic. I can't actually tell what type it is. Um, number, Mm. uh, five, four or five, but, um, but probably number five. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's interesting because it just mimics it straight up. Now, what that means, though, is kind of to your point, I think that I don't remember, like, I don't know why they would do this, but operationally, I know this is something they've really rolled out in sort of their standard procedures. Hmm. So they're very familiar with these cups because now they're in all, they're in all of the stores um, or a lot of the stores i have been to, they, they, are, they are there in different states. And so what we have talked to, hmm. we've talked to most baristas now about this, Some are in favor, some are not, not trying to shout anybody else out. It's changes how things are done. It changes the, Mm. essentially the order of operations and that Mm. for a barista is by the second when you're getting a lot of orders. And so throwing a cup into the mix is a big deal. Um, and so I bet there was a lot of calculation that went into the weight and what it's going to look like. And maybe they just didn't want to introduce the other reusable cups that maybe were more standard ceramic Mm. or other things into Mm. that mix. Um, but maybe I'm wrong and maybe they, they also have those. So I'm coming to you with a cool fact and then not really knowing the whole story. So maybe I'll have to follow <laughs> up here. Um, so, but we've enjoyed them. And, and my partner uses them because they're light and she can throw them in her bag and then it, it doesn't take mm, as much they're space. Light. Um, yeah. They're light and the light helps. Um, and so then she can just take it out of her bag and use it um, and keep it pretty clean, maybe relatively clean. We all know how that goes in reuse. Uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: if it can sometimes get a little dirty and then you're like, whatever, there's, leftover coffee in there i don't really care yeah it's um, just
1: brown water.
0: it's just yeah it's just exactly so ultimately i think it's it's, it's really cool and I'm, I'm really curious to see where the program goes and and maybe uh we'll get to talk to someone maybe at circularity coming up in the future the new our, the next conference or uh any one of these uh, uh leaders at, at any of these companies that we're reaching to out for our next episodes in our following seasons. so uh this is our fun this is part of season two and we have many more to come so maybe we can talk to somebody then
1: Fun fact, my first project yeah. when I got to grad school was I was trying to, like, do a reusable sandwich holder. Like, if you go oh. to when you're when in Boston, there's like a popular sandwich place called Clover that was like already a very sustainable brand. They were like really a leaders in composting at scale, but they were like composting. All of their reusable, the, um, the single use sandwich holders, like the wrapping. And I thought like there's something like origami esque of like if you could have some sturdy plastic that's like yeah. a triangle that could like fold up and down. I know like there's like a bunch of silicone kind of like pop up and pop down things too, but yeah. like how could you eat a sandwich on the go? Like put a, put a cap that, on it that then like can actually hold flat. and it's almost flat pack. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's, so yeah, I did did not
1: pick it up after that, but it was, I prototyped it. It was fun.
0: You prototyped it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've done that. Well, actually I did that with actually a, myself with a reusable shaver. Maybe we'll have to break out our prototypes. Maybe we'll have to just like, (laughs) so yeah, that'd be kind of funny. So this was actually, this was a reusable shaver um, that my father was obsessed with where, Uh, you got to screw in, you screw the, the screw top was attached to the shaver. So it acted like a guard and, Mm. and you'd screw it in, but you'd screw it into oil. And he was just obsessed with the fact that he could get his, his razor, his single use razor, mind you, I get that, but his single use Mm. razor to last months. And so Mm. it was this really interesting idea where we actually, we prototype something that you could. Maybe ship to developing nations or use in emergencies, because if at least if you could use a single use razor and you could preserve it, it would cut down on hepatitis or other transmittable diseases mm-hmm, from mm-hmm, razors.
1: Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm.
0: And so it's like, we should break out our prototypes. Um, we, yeah. And this is, this is exactly, yes. yeah, this, these reusable prototypes. <laughs> Maybe go, there's more
1: out there. Go digging. This I'm is sure. the call to action.
0: Yeah, this is the call to action. Proto- if you have prototype reusable something. prototypes, <laughs> send it to us. We'd love to talk about it. Um, all of yeah. our audience here—that yes, that uh, thats growing for <laughs> season two, which is nice. So please send us your prototypes. We'll we'll have to break <laughs> ours out. Um, but we're moving quickly into the next portion here, where Sabira, you're going to talk a little bit about something new, um, something yeah. that maybe we haven't we haven't heard or known, and, and educate me about. and the audience.
1: Yeah, and I think it's actually funny for me. This topic is a little bit of a blast from the past because I was thinking, what do I know really well um, that I probably haven't talked to you much about before? Which is like probably yeah. not a lot of stuff, but it's hard. Um, <laughs> yeah.
0: uh
1: So yeah, well, I'm I'm gonna take you back to my journey um, working at a waste management. It was really like waste management and circular economy services company in Bangalore. And I and you had mentioned in one of our episodes about like a little bit of the history of waste management, the company in the US. And so I was thinking like, how could I show you a little bit of a compare-contrast of what we were doing in Bangalore versus, you know, what the traditional systems are, um, why it was super progressive, but I'll also lead you in the direction of thinking about the um like labor economics and labor conditions of waste and circularity in developing nations so that's right up that's my alley
0: let's enjoy the ride yeah okay
1: okay so i'm gonna try to do uh screen share so you can see and hopefully this will go well but I thought the visual would be the most helpful. I'll talk through it as well. But... I didn't
0: even know we could do this on this podcast. This is amazing. Okay, this is fantastic. <laughs> now we have presenter mode. This is great. All right.
1: <laughs> um, well, um. This this was my life for a couple of years, and it was, I would say, one of the loveliest times in my life. So I was really just feel really passionate about it. So at the top, you hear you see the status quo of waste disposal. This is like the epitome of linear economy. All, all linear economy um, visuals kind of put this this top half out there. You have the source of the waste. In India, they call it like segregated and unsegregated waste for like separated. Segregated is the word that they choose to use. So you have unsegregated. So it's like kind of mixed waste. So that's yeah. organics, inorganics. Everything goes into one place. There is collection and quote unquote landfill um, in India, just to provide context for those who are not from there, like landfills, even like a too high of a bar. Like the the dumping We're is happening on the streets, side. in quarries, in fields, uh, okay. in rivers, so like, river lakes. Yeah.
0: So even like a landfill is too formal of a destination. And exactly. to maybe even expensive in that in that type yes. of economy, uh, a waste economy. OK, yeah.
1: Yeah. There's not like unless that there's much a model scientific change. handling. Yeah. Unless there's a model change. And, and like if you think about the economics of that, like uh, you have organizations paying like a couple of dollars per day to just have the reliability of somebody. Generally, I'm glad you said the word formal because it's generally somebody from the informal sector. So somebody who doesn't really have like a real business, doesn't have like safety protocols, anything, just like a guy in a truck coming up, coming like driving up to your building, whether you're at a Goldman Sachs or whether you're at like a small convenience shop on the street, like same kind of guy, just like throwing waste into one thing and like going away at night. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. And and if I remember correctly, I mean, some from our plastic conversations in the past too. some, these streams that involve informal picking tend to be the ones that might be the most pure because these are hands. These are, these are human educated decisions on, oh, I know this is going to sell. I know this is a value. Um, and from my own experience, I, I remember vividly that I, I remember this when I heard this the first time that some of the most valuable bales are the ones that are hand picked that are sent mm-hmm. to the U.S. from a country like Mexico, um, where it's a developing nation that uh, has an informal economy around picking that. And so yes, that's a, that's exactly. very interesting to learn that the formality. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And actually that, so then if, if this image were to go a little bit further to the right after landfill or wherever it's being dumped is oh. it's like both during the collection and that like dumping process that, that harvesting is happening right also by the informal sector. So that's like children and adults, um, literally like scavenging for waste. Yeah. There's also yeah. this like informal, like, there's informal settlements. So when I first got to India, one of the first things that I did was visit some of these informal settlements. is slum type of uh, infrastructure where there's like a ton of, um, there's like makeshift housing. Uh, Also, they're kind of like squatting on land. There's A person Mm -hmm. who's kind of like in charge of the area and they're collecting like all kinds of waste, like even human hair. There's human hair, there's plastics, paper, everything, cotton. You can think of everything. This is like the economics, waste is getting harvested, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's not done at scale. It's it's done informally by a group of people who actually rely on the waste as a form of living. Okay. So that was the status quo. Change it. Yeah. 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 Well, it's like, there's so many things wrong in that status quo. So there's like a lot of upside in circular economy, right? There's like health, economics, social structures, um, like formalization of infrastructure. There's just, there's so much upside. So the company that I worked at saw has zero waste The service that we offered was providing on-site waste management services and then off-site aggregation. But that also meant working upstream with the waste generators to separate their waste.
0: Um, And if anybody just watched or you couldn't see it when I was listening, we're going back to the informal raise your hand in class method uh, to ask a question, (laughs) which was, for me, uh, as a language uneducated, Does Sahas have a meaning in any capacity in terms of a company meaning?
1: Yes. Courage. Okay.
0: Courage. See, I I knew there was a choice there. Okay. Because it probably, with that, take the lead here on how much courage it took to, to bend the system back on itself.
1: Yes. I hope I'm right about that. I feel like I'm right. But it's also been a while. We're going to roll decide. with it. But then. it feels and right. Then we'll yeah, it on. feels right.
0: If we're, if we're so lucky, we've got a listener out there who's like, is wrong. And I feel so passionate <laughs> about telling great. her that she's wrong. <laughs> then I'm okay with that. That means that yes. we've proved that someone cares yes. about listening to this. So, yes.
1: Yeah. So what was really cool about, or what well, let me say it was really difficult about moving to a model that was on site was getting the generator of the waste to actually pay for this new set of services. And um, the, the good thing about Bangalore was that there's a set of rules that um, required what they called bulk generators. So anybody who's creating above 10 kgs of waste per day had to uh, avail the services of one of an approved list of vendors that the city had approved. It's a very long, yep. hard journey to get on that list. So the process would be: we get this the source, the generators, to separate their waste into multiple categories. We do collection and transportation, even to like an on-site location. So, collection down to a basement to like an off-site, like build small building, like not nothing huge. Yeah. Um, and we had workers right there on site who were trained to do composting and uh, and separating um, your recyclables and non-recyclables into many categories.
0: Yep. So, you're, so really the model then too, and, and ones that we've seen, but it's always difficult to communicate this, is helping the source better segregate the waste streams, collecting those waste streams, and then making sure they did it right. And yeah. And then properly getting sure properly ensuring that those products uh then reach the next best opportunity of reuse um yeah and recycling yep
1: yeah so there's two two things there one is that the feedback loop is much faster right because it's coming like that day you have a team that can like take pictures and say hey generator facilities manager who i work with like this is all mixed waste i can't do anything with it, And the cost for that is going to be 10x because um, it's harder for us to process. We have to send it to a different it's facility. punitive. Yeah, it's punitive. Um, Whoa, interesting. Which is like really difficult for people to digest, which is that's really tough. And then the other thing I wanted to say about it was. But the, that is carrot and stick, which means that
0: manager who's going to say, get that picture and be like, hey, everybody, we messed up. We need to be better because I don't I don't want at the end of the month have to pay this crazy bill if we're getting charged 10x every time we keep mixing all this waste together.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And that's where like your the managers themselves are the people who are making those decisions is like truly innovators. It's not really the facilities manager. It's somebody who's like the real estate space planner who's like, okay, I'm willing to pay this. Who had courage. Who had
0: courage. to Exactly. We're going to roll with that. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the, the staff is trained, like we're not just sorting into like plastics and paper, we're sorting into five, six different types of plastic, three grades of paper, like really getting into the quality streams so that you can then turn that material into products as much as possible. So we had our own business of selling recycled products. Not, not all of the waste went into that. Um, you still right. had we still were doing like offsite, um, MRF building so we were building our own material recovery facilities aggregating off-site selling to uh end markets so that that was happening as it does here uh but it's uh the at uh, the sorting primarily was happening on site and a little bit at the material recovery facility excellent the cool thing cool about this? composting yeah. Is that it can be done at scale and on site like the way that we think about composting in the u.s is very industrial and very at scale but like imagine in your building if you were okay in like a residential building take the building that you're in or I i'm in i'm in a hotel right now like all of the food waste that's being generated today if we just took it downstairs and composted it it's like much more clean clean meaning like you're not it's not going through a lot of steps to get compost. It's just happening right here. You right. could use it in the gardens. You could use it in the plants, or you could even donate it to farmers. Right? It's like it doesn't have to be, like, uh, uh, used everywhere. But you could decentralize. I guess is what I'm saying. Uh,
0: and and I hope this isn't going to lead us down too much of a disheartening path. But uh, it's interesting that we're here in the states trying to redo the systems that are not as beneficial to getting clean streams or more valuable streams of, of, of material to be used and reused and recycled, etc. What was that like to be doing it in a system in which it was, it was uh, newer It's in, in its industrial growth and it's, and it's, uh, uh, but the formal and informal systems were still sort of, prevailing and not working amongst each other, but you're trying to create a new system in that. What was that like?
1: It was really, it's like a little bit jarring and, and interesting because like, at least in India, what it felt like to me was that they relied so much on the social structures and they're very fixed in their perception of what like this group of informal people, their caste system, like what they were meant to do that like disrupting that and formalizing their work was kind of just like wild, like wild and new. Um, I do want to talk about an interesting model, an economic and like social model that India has worked with to kind of address that, which is something called a self-help group. And that's like the, the key thing I actually want to take away. And and I'm showing you something here on on screen. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And while you're, queuing that up. Um, for anybody who's listening, we'll be putting these in the show notes. Um, uh, and you can go back or we we will mark this in our episode as well. um, so that you can come see what, what Sabir is is displaying. So we'll have you cover it either way.
1: So what's really cool is that India in general has had something called this, the structure of a self-help group, which is allowing for a group of entrepreneurs, um, they have tended to be more female, but to basically collaborate together to co-own some sort of like business uh, si- like system for themselves. It's kind of like uh, both like a credit and like financial opportunity, as well as like a co-working opportunity. So they can rely on each other to start a business that they collectively own. And so you'll see this in weaving in, um, in waste, in, Uh, farming so like any sort of small industry uh, ceramics like these are available and these are like formalized processes that they can even get uh, loans from the government to start a business and so um, the exciting thing is that the 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 structure of the self-help group it was already being used for waste management. So like people were trying this already. So that's what I'm showing you here on the screen is that there's this woman entrepreneur, her name is Chanda. She um, had started uh, a self-help group doing door-to-door collection of unsegregated waste. And this is kind of like her operation on the left. So you can see like, these are women working, maybe not like super formalized, you know, no industrial equipment, just sitting there and sorting. And then she, she started like the help, self-help group. She got some funding and then was able to formalize her operations. IKEA gave them some money to upgrade and double the capacity of her facility, setting up kind of like a fully formalized business where the waste workers are now, they're operating in a more formal situation than they were before. And so you yeah. get scale of business, more formal work, more processing of waste. And that came from both like the grant funding from Ikea, but also this like self-help group structure that like really poor women are co-owners in.
0: And so this is reminding me, and we don't have to go too much down the the whole of business structure, but like a trade, some sort of trade co-op or
1: exactly.
0: um, where, yes, where the, the the talent has already been pooled. Now yeah. it's, now it's almost proper structure to the governance model almost so that then capital can be infused and everyone then benefits uh, exactly. Yeah, that's, exactly that's exactly fascinating
1: and so maybe just to round it out like that i feel really passionately about this because this was my my like aha moment to even care about the circular economy is i was i watched women not in this kind of situation more like on the street collecting waste. And I just asked myself the question, like what power could be unlocked if they were collaborating together? And here's like an example of like the government, private sector, private sector donations, like entrepreneurs, like all sorts of kinds of people coming together to make circular economy infrastructure possible while uplifting the poor and, uh almost setting an example of here's what's really great waste infrastructure could look like at a decentralized level.
0: That's fantastic. Uh, I love that you provided a little bit of history, a little bit of current operations and then what the future looks like by doing, again, a more socially uh, just um, and sort of, again, equitable, but then also financially viable solution here. Uh, This is this is this is great. what else is, what else, to, how do we round this out? Any, any last tidbits?
1: I guess I would just say like these kinds of entrepreneurs are all over India. In fact, I wanted to pull yeah. up another example of a company that I had worked with, um, Green Worms, uh, more in the South of India, same same kind of uh, methodology, same kind of like inspiration. And so I guess like my in conclusion here is that Circular economy, when you think of like Ellen MacArthur butterfly diagram, like there's there's economic and entrepreneurial opportunity at all levels and like the structures of how you get there um, can be accessible, but it might not be super obvious right away how to like tap into that. And I I'm sure that can feel overwhelming to new entrepreneurs, but I just want to highlight like it is possible and it's happening globally.
0: I think that's such a good call out for entrepreneurs where um, you and I have, were involved with with and, and you still are where this is one way to do a business, which is a uh, venture capital infused business in which you're proving a solution. But you don't have to go that route. You can go the a, a co-op route where you're getting a group together, and then you're mm-hmm. you're doing another thing, and maybe you're bootstrapping it in the beginning or, or something to that there. So mm-hmm. anybody listening, I mean, there's so many ways to intervene in these wasteful outcomes, and you don't always have to stand by the uh, the the t- the maybe economically typical structures that we've seen for companies. Um, I've done a little yeah. bit more research into co-ops and into uh, uh, different types of um, systems that bring people together to solve a problem, but then not only is it bringing people, it might aggregate material flows. And so mm-hmm. material flow being an aggregation points being a central point to any business model. And so um, what a great a great solution. Uh, we'll have to kind of dive maybe even more into green worms at some point too. Um Okay. Well, this segues us into also more future business model thinking, uh, future business model operations. Um, into MOLG. Um we were able to chat with uh, with Rob, um, and and uh, Rob's the CEO of, of MOLG. and um, ultimately uh, we were fascinated by this. Right? I mean, what a cool cool idea to to combine automation with. AI and machine learning um, to start taking components apart um, in this you servers, know, in this conversation, yeah. yes, and service, right? Exactly. So there were there's so many there's things um, that the, there's hardware that are being taken apart. Yes. We should be very clear about that. Yeah. Um, I wanted to introduce this topic of Rob um, talking about the pricing model. Um, candidly, Sabira and I we're we're getting more and more professional, but sometimes we miss up on asking a question. So we had to circle back with Rob and talk about the pricing model. And I just wanted to call that out real quickly, which is, he said, we have a pricing, uh, a price per component recovered model. So this range is based on the component. And if any additional steps we do regarding the requalification, the requalification meaning the testing or visual inspection of products, in addition to the volume of components per month, they are harvesting. So that's gonna become a little more clear when we talk about uh, what what Mulg is. Um, and we get into all of that uh, with Rob. Um, any lasting impressions on our interview with with Rob?
1: Yeah, I mean, I love what he's what he's working on, which is taking the technology industry and the massive amount of server investments that we've made in the U.S. and abroad, and making it um, easily take apartable by leveraging data about the servers themselves and being able to process their disassembly faster than manual disassembly, which is really like it's waste harvesting or material harvesting with precision. And that is, I think, the way of the future. And I think because technology is so high value, it's worth it for them to invest in the AI and the robots to be able to do that. And I'm really excited for the cost of technology to come down so that we can actually do that with more and more material streams.
0: And as just as robots and AI start having more and more of the conversation, we get into what that also means for humans. So in this interview, we talk to the human, Rob Lawson Shanks, uh, who's the CEO of molk Enjoy this interview. Uh, again, uh, always uh, hit us up in, in our, our feed on YouTube or in anywhere else that you might be listening to us. We'll be there uh, ready to comment back. Um, And please reach out to us if you ever have any questions. And we're happy to connect with anybody on LinkedIn as well. Uh, Enjoy the interview with, again, human Rob (laughs) Lawson-Shanks, CEO of MOLT.
1: Not the robot. (laughs) We'll just keep
0: digging because we're both naturally just super curious about our our industry and our field and and what you're doing. And and we all love this stuff. So, um, But again, if there's ever that boundary, feel free to. Crack wise, whatever you want. Just <laughs> We know that there's a boundary there. So, um, on that, we don't do that often. We don't like dig, dig, dig too badly. So yeah, so there you go. Um, so with that, actually, we can kind of kick this off because I would love to know about the name. Part of the fun part about <laughs> our, our finding that SEO value, uh, creating a brand that can stand <laughs> yeah. out, involves sometimes creating these unique brands. Can you tell us about Mulk?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um so Mogatchi stands for Machines of Loving Grace. Um and it comes back from a nineteen sixty-seven poem by Richard Bordigan. He was a, a poet but also a Caltech professor. Uh and he wrote it really in an interesting time in technology, um, where it, it hadn't had such a big impact on our lives as, as we see it today. It was a very techno-optimist view. Um the the full length of the poem said you called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. And it's about this future where we're working in harmony with machines. We're delabored of all the things that, you know, repetitive, tedious kind of, uh, uh, kind of tasks, And we're kind of living in this cybernetic forest where kind of machine and, and human kind of coexist in this kind of beautiful, harmonious kind of nature. So yeah, Moog is a, you know, it comes up quite a bit and it's done for machines of love and grace.
0: I, I imagine it, it would. And I think that's a great <laughs> naming convention that again, and backstory, um, is that in the origin story a little bit? I mean, where does that poem intersect with where you became more and more obsessed with this harmonious transaction between us and machine? Um, the balance between what we're seeking of circular manufacturing or just not being as extractive on our economy or environmental systems is. Does it start with you, sort of, again in that exploration of that poem? Where is that journey? How does that start?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I've been really fortunate to work in into my electronics manufacturing, kind of building startups, building new products in new categories. Um and my previous company, as CTO and co-founder, spent a lot of time in China and building up new production lines. Um we looked far and wide across different ways that we could do final assembly, how we could do this level of production. Ultimately it led us to, you know, the normal places, the the Shenzhen, the to the Shanghai's. Um and so as I spent kind of hundreds of days working in these lines, building all this up, you know, as the company was more successful, as we shipped more products, you know, we started to get some of that back through normal returns, end of use, um, you know, all the normal things that you go through in a, in a e-commerce type business. Um, and we literally, you know, looked at, okay, well, because of how we designed and manufactured this, it's actually really difficult to put a lot of these critical components that we put our blood, sweat, and tears into back into circularity. Um, and so, what would we need to change and what level of infrastructure would we need? Um, because we can't just ship it back to where we made it. There's a huge infrastructure to manufacture, but when we, we looked on kind of the back end of that, that end of use phase, um, and we do like to think about end of use rather than end of life, um, you know, we did not see that level of tools and sophistication, mm-hmm. um, both on how we design for this, but also how we have those physical systems that can do this level of processing. So that ultimately led us to to starting Morg. Um, And we started in kind of January 2021. And we just went around with other people that we knew in the industry and said, hey, we faced all these challenges building and scaling. You know, do you have this? Um, And then we started to see more circularity goals for 2030, 2025, going and asking people, hey, how are you thinking about this? Because you make tens of millions of these every year. How are you going to get 100% circularity, you know, in the next, you know, seven years? Oh, Um, and and they said, oh,
0: and that brand said, oh, we totally have a plan. We don't need your help. Um, you know, we have this all settled out, right? That's what the plan was?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, yeah. So, um, you know, I think we're all, it's a journey. You know, there's no perfect solution today. Um, and it takes about kind of incremental kind of improvements and putting these systems in place. Um, and so that's, that really gave us the impetus to go and design some of our systems, both from the automation side, but also this new circular design tool chain.
1: Amazing. Tell us more about the beginning of that journey. So, well, you didn't answer the poem part. So like, where did the poem come in in that journey? And then I want to know, then how did you get started?
2: Absolutely. Well, I have a very brilliant uh, co-founder and CTO, Mark Lyons. And I think it was actually just something he had uh, kind of circulating kind of throughout the years and something that he had kind of come Mm -hmm. back to a couple of times. It represents kind of a unique view on, on technology and how, we can work together, and, and when we thought about the company we wanted to build, robots can seem very scary and cold and, you know, displacing. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it represents, from our perspective, and a massive opportunity to kind of meet this 10x order of magnitude that we need to go through. You know, we think about e-waste, you know, only 17% of, of electronics get recycled, typically. Um, and, you know, it's a 50 million metric ton plus problem a year, one of our presses growing waste streams how do we use and work with machines to extend our capability rather than kind of displace it? So the same number of people that are doing this work today, we can make that much, much more enjoyable. We can use people for what they're best at, and we can then use machines to scale because this is really a scale problem that we have if we're really going to get to those 100% circularity goals and really transition to this more circular economy that you know is really critical for our sustainability. So how
1: did you come up with focusing on e-waste and then the first robot, like that product market experimental phase. What did you? How did you decide what to start with?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, you think about really anything that's made could have a demanufacturing plan and, and really should. Um, mm-hmm. So we're early in our journey in terms of the maturity of technology. Um, robotics is still very much got much, much more to go. We came from electronics manufacturing, so, so we knew that well. Um, and we knew what the current processes were, we kind of knew the, that was kind of our world. Um, we did go through really broad customer discovery um, and chatted with a lot of people um, you know, from you know, servers, PCs, kind of mid-grade consumer electronics, batteries, you know, EVs, um, kind of the full spectrum here. And where we ultimately kind of landed on was, we're gonna focus on servers and enterprise level laptop PCs. And within those streams, there's typically a collection process um, and then there's some level of human level processing. Um, typically it's called and referred to as kind of harvesting, um, but they're going to some level of manual disassembly. Um, and this is, you know, really kind of very, you know, robotic kind of perfect work. It's that dull, dirty, dangerous. Um, it's repetitive. Um, you know, it's also really hard to train kind of the ever evolving um, workforce on what is a really valuable component versus what is something that is probably best to be recycled. Um, and then, also, how do we enable kind of with data and high purity streams our downstream partners so that they can generate the best kind of economic value from the things that we're disassembling. Unfortunately, all of these things are made out of many, many different components. Um, so there's not a perfect recycling process. You do need to go through this this process. And, and so to your question on where we came to robots was, well, we need to break up all these things. We, we've been spending you know years of our lives putting stuff together but we also need to critically take them apart so that we can put them to these great downstream recycling processes that are coming and enable these new circular uh, material flows.
0: You mentioned it a little bit briefly of the goal of reuse and recycling. um, And that in, in any videos that we will link also to the the podcast uh, video and, and Spotify, um, you're 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 delicately extracting these valuable components no. um and and i think that's that is very that's very unique of a of a mission because ultimately we've seen a lot of videos of, of things getting stripped and it's an, an aggressive process um that can often render something not useful um how you know what getting to that conclusion of of reuse how does that fit in with um maybe even a common understanding of maybe some type of Moore's law where we outpace ourselves of reuse, especially in the technology sphere. Um, I'm saying that knowing that maybe I'm even what I'm saying is a little bit in error. Um, cause there's, there very much is reuse. Um, but how do you explain that to someone in the technology field? Where it's like, no, no, no. there are components that are still relevant in a one-year-old laptop. Um, uh, rather than throwing that away, you're not going to out innovate yourself out of that one-year-old laptop. There's still value in that. How have you gotten to that argument? What roadblocks have you seen in that, uh, that progression?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic question and, and something that we get a lot. Um, you, you know, the reality is we didn't actually have to do much. Um, if you look at kind of hyperscale cloud providers, um, they're actually already have missions to reuse a, a tremendous amount of their components. Um, a lot of the... So we work a lot in these servers. Um, and in that, there's a huge, huge demand for more compute. You know all the things mm. that are powering kind of our, our basic apps all the way to really advanced stuff in terms of kind of generative AI loads. Um, there's a, a many many kind of pretty standard RAM, DIM memory, all of these things that can be requalified and redeployed um, and and used in like for like um, you know uh, applications. Yeah. Um, so there's it's not to say that everything has a, a perfect reuse um, process, but there's so much. Um, that we can reuse and within that reuse it actually represents up to about a 200 time value relative to the commodity materials that it's made of. And those are really big game changers when you think about enabling kind of early stage technology. And for us, we want to ultimately cost down our our cost of technology so that we can deploy it really, really widely and get into kind of that mid tier to low tier consumer electronics waste where A product will sell anywhere between a hundred to a thousand dollars you know we're starting things that are a thousand plus and and there are really solid in market kind of use cases really strong secondary markets for these components um people are using them and reassembling and building new servers um not all kind of servers need the same level um you know you have a really kind of a long tail storage problem on on problems where we've all been on social media and had to store things and we want to retrieve you know that cat video from 10 years ago, that doesn't need to be, you know, necessarily running on the latest kind of chipset. And um, that's going to be powering your your chat GPTs. Um, so there's a really broad use case and our demand for compute is so high that this just gives a great, you know, demand pull from the market um, that we can then supply with these really high qualified, non-destructive like recovered components. Cause again, as you say, it's this transition from kind of a smash and grab shred, um, you know really kind of brutal processes um, for what you know are these potentially beautiful components um, we take a more of a advanced manufacturing high precision non destructive approach um, and then we requalify um you know both from a visual and functional perspective, um, so we can provide confidence, um, which is a big part of the reuse you know how do you deliver a really high confidence product that someone knows they can put into their infrastructure and rely on that
0: I love that uh, and that's so. Helpful to even for me to understand, of course, there are tiers to reuse, that there are tiers mm-hmm. that, again, to your point, the chat GPT doesn't need to run on the same uh, type of technology that is going to play the mo- the most average YouTube video or the most whatever type of of, of thing we're scrolling. Um, you said an important statistic there that I, I would love to unpack a little bit on that, that uh, the value of reuse versus destruction and recycling um, How have you all helped develop that understanding? How have you all uh, helped contribute to that notion that, hey, we need to be encouraging reuse because it's an investment, not necessarily uh, a a costly um, type of endeavor for an organization? Um, Tell me more. I mean, That's half the battle that Sabir and I are always doing too, and that's (laughs) almost our entire battle as an industry, I bet, is really always asserting that, hey, the investment in reuse will pay off. How have you all worked on uh, contributing to that body of work um, and and continuing that education for the market.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's certainly the the existing in market products and and in servers. Um, there's you know many many tiers of types of data centers that can provide a really wide um, you know section uh, selection yeah. of, of components. Um, but then when we look at new product design and we're designing that next generation um, circular electronic product, we think about it as good better best models. So how do you start with kind of your state of the art? You know best in-class kind of enterprise laptop PC. You know, how do you then take that for ultimately scaling down this cascading use case to ultimately something that might power a Chromebook for you know a, a, a future up-and-coming school student um, that certainly does not need to be doing all the computationally you know um, demanding rendering or CAD or anything like that. And that same chipset is going to perform um, in five to seven years and. Absolutely enable a whole new generation of digital inclusion um, with much cheaper, more sustainable you know lower embodied carbon products um, so that good better best if you kind of apply that across um, you know certainly it's a it's a discovery process every time you go into a, to an industry but start as you go in for for servers for laptop pcs you really start to see how it all comes together uh, and then working with that supply chain to kind of understand the needs of the different kind of use cases that they have. Um, it goes, okay, well, what, what should we really be prioritizing from a disassembly sequence, from a cost um, that we critically need to recover these components uh, and we need to re-qualify in this way to give you confidence that you can reuse them in, in another product or use case.
0: Um, just uh, before I get to you, Sabira, on, on your next question, I want to qualify that for then someone who's listening because I think we see that all the time, which is that reuse can actually end up being empowering for the another consumer who may not want to spend that much more on the brand new, the newest high functioning thing, but want an entry model. Um, that kind of idea that even we might have, we might buy, uh, a starter pack of something the starter where we get our feet wet a little bit and then graduate to some higher functioning technology. And we see that in laptops. We even see that in cars to some extent. Um, and, and so I think that's a great example of diversifying the product models and the consumer base that might be available for that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, so, to help illustrate like how you make that possible. Your robots, they're not just robots and they're delicate and gentle because like you provide them the right data kind of like the demanufacturing plan you were you were mentioning. Tell us about like how does that work? How do you tell a robot to be gentle?
2: <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of kind of at the heart of what we do. We we think of it as assembly intelligence. Um, and so that's really about understanding how things come together and come apart from a mechanical perspective. And basically, we turn that into software. Um, and then that software can be understood by our, our robotics. And one thing that we do that's kind of a little bit different than, say, like traditional automation is we actually synthesize these dynamic jobs for everything that we see. Um, so it might be the same skew or model. Um, but every time we look at something, we determine what is going to be the highest value um, process that we can run on that. Um, and so we go in with a relatively high confidence and a deterministic um, uh, plan. But then as we take things apart, we're seeing things with our vision systems. We're seeing things from our additional sensors and then we're constantly updating and adjusting, you know, the, the difference between, you know, manufacturing is you're going to make the same thing, you know, down the line. And that's just a, a process and then maybe a little bit of mix. Um, but de-manufacturing is all over the place. You can have the same thing and it can look you know, a million different ways in terms of its configurations. So the robots have to be able to see, perceive and adapt um, to the processes. Um, And then we go kind of a step beyond that. And then we're pulling in market data into that so that we can also understand what the market needs so that if suddenly the economics change and we should be grabbing that additional component that previously wasn't being harvested, um, we can do all of that kind of on the fly. So this is a really dynamic, interesting workforce um, that we're not just you know, shipping pieces of paper to update SOPs on, on these kind of uh, harvesting. We're actually doing that all through software. We're orchestrating it through multiple cells. Um, and that, again, it's all about kind of we have to, if we follow the economics and we make that model really well, the, the sustainability and all of that follows and it makes it a, a much more digestible kind of process in terms of you know, these high aspirational circular hopes that we all have.
1: Yeah, there's a couple points there that I want to dig deeper into. One is what you mentioned about the robot uh, being able to adapt and being able to read what's happening. That is very humanistic, right? So when we think of robots, and as you're saying, like on the manufacturing side, it's just repetitive and you're doing the same thing. But in demanufacturing, you almost need like that human brain of being able to say, oh, this ipad is different than an iphone and therefore i have to do something differently or model one is different than model two so i have to do something differently and uh, that's just a people have invested in manual disassembly because of that because it's so difficult to aggregate like with like and it so so your innovation and your technology basically eliminates that the need for aggregation of the same thing over and over again which i think is like a huge benefit from a logistics and collection and even like consumer perspective right don't make the consumer think about what they're sending you you're gonna take care of it because yeah. your robots can take care of it
2: absolutely and and you know the the benefit is anything that we're, we're processing was probably made three to seven years ahead of time so we have the ability to kind of understand what's in the market, what's the highest volumes, and then work to have those things ready by the time that they ever see our machines. Um, and for us within that assembly intelligence is actually these assembly patterns. Um, so mm-hmm. then those are really, really discrete, um, parametized um, kind of bits um, there that sit in these mechanical assemblies. And then once we've seen those assembly patterns, we can then map them to all these other things. Um, mm-hmm. So that ultimately makes Uh, our ability to take in new things and then update our fleet of machines, kind of like you would uh, over the air update, um, it suddenly can now do this next level of processing. Um, And so we we typically start with pretty basic processes and then we incrementally add Mm -hmm. and add more sophistication, go deep on disassembly. You know, We'll start a project where we're pulling maybe only three main components that a a human workforce is doing right now. but we have line of sight Mm. onto those next nine components. Um, And then over time, as we see more diversity, as we see more mix, we're gonna add in that component selection. Um, And then ultimately we're working and trying to develop and work with our partners to develop the downstream partners or or the markets that can ultimately realize the full value of those components too. So circular economy is such a ecosystem play. We all need to kind of work together. Um, You know, we do a very, very small slice of the pie. Um, You know, we we think it's important and, and, you know we get to work with great people um but without kind of the upstream and the downstream um you know the robots would be sitting very idle
1: yeah and i think that downstream part also sorry gar <laughs> what you're <laughs> but what you were you're saying being able to also be dynamic and responsive to the downstream economics can you tell us a little bit about why the economics would change and then in what way do you see that and how that impacts your decision making? So like the, the price of metal is changing, like what are you actually seeing in the real world as a real example that influences the disassembly decisions? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, metal, yeah, you can look at basic commodity values. Um, you know, that's, there's many, many global markets that have kind of live feeds of this. Um, and we work with a lot of ITADs, IT Asset Disposition, and, and they're very, very tied in, into these. Um, which kind of dictate kind of the profitability of the business. And and you've seen kind of they go through these cycles. Um, And so as we can adapt with our customer to kind of meet those cycles, that can, you know, adjust the type of processing we're doing. Um, And then additionally, there's kind of live markets of of components. Um, So suddenly there might be a huge spike um, in need for a very specific type of chip um, because there's a whole new um, build going on somewhere that they're trying to build the next 100,000 of these components um, that might spike the market and then suddenly make it very, very attractive where not only are you harvesting it, but you're doing some level of visual and functional re-qualification on that um, so that you can ultimately deploy that. Um, and, you know, we're still in the early days of that. You know, we, it's, we're in a dynamic fluid market. You know, we're, we're adjusting every day. Um, you know, we're doing relatively simplistic things, you know, from our perspective and certainly against the vision of where we're going. Um, but it's about kind of doing the work, learning, responding, you know, and and these are production systems. So it's, it's not kind of a, a laboratory. It is real processes, real material flows. Um, and you have to kind of do this for real. And that's, you know, one of the, our core kind of principles is we're actually shipping our robots to our customers. So we're not asking them to divert their material streams to us. And we're not building big kind of gigascale factories ourselves that are under bulb. We're actually saying, hey, we have a robot that's designed to fit inside your facility, work inside your workflows, um, and we're not asking you to ship or add additional transport carbon. Let's go to where that material is today um, and help you extend that human workforce and then open up all these new kind of business line opportunities in terms of what we can harvest, requalify, qualify redeploy. Um, And then, you know, ultimately, we just want to put as many robots in as many places that it makes sense um, and have a fully distributed system so we're not asking people to kind of ship and add more kind of carbon than than we need to um, so that, you know, we can protect as much as that embodied carbon as possible that's already going into these components.
0: Uh, To that end, uh, you you take us into the human aspect and the manufacturing aspect. I have a, a two-part question. Uh, one will be about the relationship to humans, and then the other one will be about the business model. Um, with uh, the, the AI, machine learning, robotic relation to humans, um, You know, I, I, I want to skip the, the thread of conversation that we already actually had with, a, with another founder um, uh, at uh, Eric Law with a Urban Machine of, of thinking about what does this mean for human jobs. Let's skip that real quickly, because again, this is highly repetitive tasks. These are tasks that to some degree, um, humans shouldn't be doing. We're very creative beings and we should be applying that towards something else. Um, however, we are in now this current, where I'm, I'm very interested in what you all are seeing for the productivity of what the machines can do now versus what a human can do now. Where are we at in that evolution? Are we still, are, is the robot and the output of the robot still Sub of where a human would be in terms of output, or are we now getting to that level of competitiveness, or maybe even exceeding that um, of human capacity?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I would say we're actually kind of ahead um, right now in terms of the projects that we have. Um, Got it. You know this, and and I, you know, Eric had a great uh, conversation with you guys, and I think had similar points. You know, robots don't get tired; they don't get bored. You know, they, um, we do build an autonomous system. So long as they're fed um you know and for us that's putting big server racks up to them um they will continue to run um without human intervention now we are very collaborative with the the teams that we work with so for a very concrete example our robots are not very good at some of the really dense cable clusters that come in on server racks um so really practically speaking we have teams and the the current teams are going from having to lift and move really big heavy servers and do all of this now they're going and decabling and cleaning Things and preparing these systems
1: to oh, then yes. put into
2: a, a much more deterministic process um, through the machines, um, and you know, working alongside these people, you know, um, you know, they they love this kind of approach because it's so much more rewarding. They really want to be involved in these new technologies and kind of work with them. And then, of course, if we ever run against you know something that we cannot handle or is completely kind of unknown. We can then push back out a server into a human-level workforce, um, where they can do and use that creativity and problem-solving, and then they can update the machine. So the next time we see it, um, it can it can handle it.
0: To that end, I'm actually then really curious about that that server cabling, because that seems like it's because it's not uniform and it was done by a human uh, in the, at the rack at the at the site that. Each one, each maybe professional is going to cable something a little bit differently that then you can't account for it. Is that how we should be thinking about that? And that's why that is complicated for a robot and, and system to understand?
2: Absolutely. Uh, it's kind of, we, we classify it as kind of a non-deterministic problem. If you think about pulling out a cable, um, it might end up in, uh, in a many, many different states um, because it's a non-rigid body. Um, now, of course, we're working on things with our vision systems and our feedback to, to ultimately and help solve some of these problems Um, and again extend that you know human test into where again they can be best and remove as many repetitive tests as possible but there's practical limitations today and let's not wait and sit on our hands till we have the full perfect technology solution let's work with what we have work with teams um, and ultimately you know really solve the problem we're trying to which is you know putting more things back into circularity Um, so there's as I kind of mentioned before, there's no perfect solution to this. And it's very iterative, you know, we're all learning today, um, you know, every day. And it's just about going through that journey and, and learning to enjoy the journey.
0: Absolutely. Um, when it comes to, uh, I actually, I'm gonna, there'll be another, I want to actually double down on this a little bit too, cause we can get to the economics. But um, when it comes to then what journey you're choosing, um, where you're taking the product, where you're taking the technology, being in the circular field, being founders and working at early stage companies, um, we know that the decision tree of what to pursue is, is ever expanding. Um, and ultimately we find that to be probably not just as founders and starting something, um, but also uh, in circular economy. The, the natural um, uh, uh, ecosystem, as we said in the beginning, is complex, so there's a lot of different actors. Um, how do you how are you thinking about where you're taking the company and really just pursuing a few courses um, to be the most impactful in that course is possible um, I think what I even automatically see and I'd love your reaction to this as an example maybe is you all probably could be quite advanced in your advocacy for using simpler screws or simpler type of um, ways to package something that makes uh, limited tools um of choosing for those robots of what they need to use to de-manufacture something that i see as a whole on advocacy campaign of trying to reduce the amount of different varying screws and fasteners that might be used in an application give us some more examples i mean how are you engaging in in the sort of sphere of choices of what you guys need to pursue to, to grow mold yeah
2: absolutely so um there's a huge opportunity to change the way that we design um, things that are built for circularity and automation. Um, a great public example of this is Dell's Concept Luna. So this is a machine that can be disassembled in less than 60 seconds with no tools. There's no screws, there's no glues. You know, It's a modern, you know, uh, high-class enterprise-level machine. Um, and they've really proven um, through that project, this is what circularity can look like. And of course, all those things are very automation friendly. Um, They help on the manufacturing side and then they also enable all of this kind of end of use um, automation for for redeployment. Um, So we're very much advocating, you know, and working with kind of leading electronic companies on how we frankly make our lives easier in the next three to five years when some of those things are built and then come to their end of use. Um, We're trying to make our robots lives easier you know, that they don't have to deal with as much screw, um, screws and glues and some of these things that have become very commonplace. Um, and, and even, you know, there's other companies that are doing this, um, without the automation, you know, companies like Framework and they're designing this next kind of generation machines that are being deployed. Um, so, you know, whatever we can do to help there. And, and we get to work on a lot of these MPI projects, new product introduction. Um we were talking about this a little bit before but you know what we found really works is the traditional kind of mindset sometimes is like well that's not possible it won't meet our engineering spec you know there's no way this is reliable we will prototype rapidly you know from sitting on 11 you know pm cool with taiwan we will you know in the morning and through their night we will prototype a new type of assembly a new type of slide latch these types of things Um, on on the machinery that you can see kind of behind me for those that can see, but, you know, CNC, 3D printing, all the rapid prototype technology that's really come to bear um, in the last kind of 10, 15 years. And then we ship it. And then they have it in two days. They have it in their hand. And then that seeing is believing. And I think so much of what we're hoping to do with circularity is is show that this can be done with real companies at scale. Um, And, you know, to your question on, how do we choose um, where to kind of spend our time and energy? We are currently working on people that have huge impact, you know, they're making tens and tens of millions of machines, if not hundreds of millions of devices. Um, and if we can make these incremental improvements, you know, over the coming five to eight years, then we actually have a real shot at hitting, you know, these circularity goals. It's not going to flip a switch and suddenly everything works and everything's perfect, You know. The, the scale of the problem is huge. Um, but if we're diligent, we work with great partners, we we'll are ultimately then democratize the technology um, and then work our way further down so that we enable a lot more circularity in lower cost products where they are just destined for the shredder. And there's no possible collection process right now. Um, so that's that's the beauty of technology automation is that it can have this potential for a, a democratizing force um, that we can all then build and design around we'd love to give confidence to those next generation designers and say, here's the tools that you can build for, have confidence that this is gonna be a global infrastructure that will be there and it will be ready to take in that end of use product um, at you know at that point in time, and then enable all these other great fantastic downstream and upstream partners um, that's kind of really needed to create this full circular economy.
0: And I think to that and round that out then is how important that is for the the tipping point that we're all preparing for. And that we're all planning out our piece of, of whatever piece of the economy, manufacturing, remanufacturing, reuse, scale, whatever that might be, that to your point, you need to plant that flag and point to it and say, hey, this is what you all can plan for. This is possible now. Um, so be thinking of this for the future, because the reality is, and I've seen this on my end, there are. I even hate saying this like this, but there are generations that are phasing out of their, their roles in organizations that um, have wanted things to maybe stay the same or are comfortable with the way they are. And the newer generations, whether that be designers, sales professionals, engineers, whoever it might be, they need to look at those flags and say, hey, why aren't we considering that, that company over there that's doing this differently? And I think that's so important.
2: Absolutely. I mean we have a you know, I was chatting with an engineer and asking them why they designed something a certain way. You know, we, we could practically see it wasn't something they were particularly proud of, but they make, you know, tens of millions of this thing and we're like, Why why did you do it? And they said, Well that's because that's the machine that we have, you know, inside our factory. Um and so people design for what they have access to um and what they know. So the more that we can educate and enable these new types of tools and infrastructure then people can have confidence and know okay well i don't have to do it like that um i can do it for this because i i have faith and confidence that These things will be available to me so the more that we can you know provide that confidence provide that education um i hope you know we're all naturally just because there are great economics around circularity it isn't all um you know obviously our driver and our passion is around creating a more equitable you know sustainable future um but there's great economics in this as well and and you you see that in servers um you're starting to see that in other industries but we want to propagate that um kind of ideology and and business model uh, across kind of all electronics and beyond.
1: So as we head towards the end of our time together, uh, Rob, what are your thoughts or advice for entrepreneurs that are out there and just getting started or that are interested in getting started in the world of um, circular economy? Um, what what Gives you hope for the future, and what advice do you have uh, for those those folks that are exploring?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think societally we're 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 getting a lot more comfortable with that as a service model, so rather than just having to to buy something, you know there's great you know there, there's emotional attachments to ownership and things like that, but I think we are all kind of shifting, and even when you're paying you know your your latest iPhone on kind of some kind of finance. These are all kind of the mental shifts that we're making that ultimately enables a circular economy. Um, so, if you can, see if there's a good as a, as a service model um, for your business. And what that will enable you to do is think about the cost of, of build um, and design a little bit differently. So, how do you build something that could be amortized out of three, four, or five lives um, rather than just building something as cheap as possible and then dumping that responsibility onto the end consumer of what to do? Um, ultimately, you're going to have a much more loyal customer. Um, they're going to have those kind of repeat. Your your revenue perspective will be a lot smoother. It's not going to be kind of lumpy. Um, and so these are all great. You know, it works for the customer. It works for the business. So the more that we can think about designing for multiple lives, selling for multiple lives, um, you know, these are all things that will help us all. Um, and then if you're, you know, take a chance to, to, you know, some of these new material manufacturers that are coming out, don't just go for what's known and, and feel free to push back against your engineers and say, well, have we thought about you know, how this comes apart? Do we need to glue this um, you know, and, and really challenge it? And then you know, look to these increasingly more examples that are coming out. Um, and of course, you know, feel free to reach out to us. We're more than happy to get on the phone and, and you know, um, you know, help try and convince whoever we can that uh, there's a more circular world that's possible um, with better design and, and certainly automation to help meet the scale.
0: I could not agree with that more. Um, This is definitely a call out for uh, all of the popularity that that, uh, SAS has had over the last 15 years. Uh, I'm sure every product manufacturer would want a taste of those margins and locking people into those ecosystems. So when we speak about these these economics, uh, yes, there's a future where you can lock a uh, very... Um, loyal customer. If you've been servicing them with a great product and you continue to maintain that service through that uh, product as a service model, why not build for that future? I I love where your head's at there, Rob. Um, Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, I mean, this is, again, this is the dream of, of having these conversations again. If you have any more questions for any of us, uh, this is now to the listeners. Uh, feel free to reach out to myself, Sabira, but then also uh, listen to Rob on that. If you're in a manufacturing setting, might as well give Mole a call. See what they can see what they can do for you. So, um, thank you, Rob, for your time here today.
1: Thanks. For Real
2: pleasure. Me. Thanks so much. Uh, really a, a pleasure to, to connect with you, and I love the the mission that you guys are on. And um, yes, any way I can help in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out.
0: Excellent. Thanks, Rob.